this is really a very, very women-focused story. And it's very unusual. It's very unusual. Uh, we have two heroines here who are both women. And to my mind, I, I always find it interesting that it's it just, the Tanakh just sort of, um, it's kind of matter of fact about it. The Chazal get very involved with it. Chazal, you know, why was Deborah a judge and all this, but the Tanakh is just, Deborah was in the Bia when she was the Shabbatet, and we go from there. It's, it's very interesting to me. So, um, yeah, so we, we, we get the high-powered women in this story. What we have to know about um, the story of Deborah, first of all, it's two chapters. So this is a little bit of a shame that we're going to have such a big break between Dalit and Hay, because Hay and Dalit are a unit, and Hay fills in a lot of what Dalit leaves out. So the story of Deborah is in, in Parak Dalit, in chapter four, the story of Deborah is basically a, um, I'm sorry, this is going to keep happening. There's something a little wrong with my computer. So I'm just going to keep fixing it. I'm going to need some help with that at some point. Um, the story of Devorah in chapter four is a prose story. It's a narrative. And the story of chapter five is the Shira Devorah. Devorah sings a song. Now, Perak Hay is the Haftorah for Az Yashir, for Parshas Bashala, And it's an extremely important thing. And uh, we'll have to spend time, Bezrat Hashem, after the Chagim, working our way through the themes of the Shira. And then we can put it together with the kind of uh, connections that it makes with chapter four. Because they're really, um, it's really important to see Parakei as well, but we're gonna do the best we can. Now, in terms of the story in, in its placement in, and say for Shops, I'm gonna screen share. So I, I like to start with this. If you'll notice the division of the Perak in this, this, this particular um, edition in the, uh, in the computer shows you that Shoftim in this chapter is divided only, this, this chapter is only divided into two parts. The first Vipsukim, which is sort of a prelude, and then the whole narrative. So um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. I think it, we could break it up further. And I would say that the first part, um, Sukkim Aleph to Gimel, is really about the cycle, which we'll talk about in one second. And the, the, the next section, what I have here is basically from Pasuk Dalit until um, Pasuk Yod Aleph, including Yod Aleph. Okay, that's really the setup, the discussion of who Deborah is and what she's doing and um, preparation for the battle. And from Yudbet until um, Tetbav, 12 to 15, it's basically the, the, the battle. And from 16 until the end is sort of the aftermath of the battle. So we're gonna, without further ado, let's talk about this. First of all, um, just to reiterate, the Shoftim outline has, the, the, the outline of Sefer Shoftim has three parts. The first part is the first two chapters, which is introductory. The chronological history of the judges is chapters three to 16, which we're in the middle of now. And the two stories at the end are three stories, which are kind of not chronological. Now, the Shoftim cycle, we follow this in chapter three in the story of Atmiel. Okay, and it goes like this. They have peace. They're at a peaceful place. And then B'nai Israel sin, right? Usually that's idolatry and following in the ways of the nations around them. And then Hashem punishes them through giving them over to enemies. And then they cry out to God because of their oppression by the enemies and God sends them a judge. That's the fourth part. And the judge uh, gives them a, 
a redemption, a helps them, saves them, and then they, they're back to peace. And then we saw this with Atniel. Atniel, the, the great Tamachachim from Yehuda, he fought Kushan Rishatayim, and then we ended with a peace, and then we saw the story of Ehud. Ehud fought Eglon, and then, you know, there was peace again. Now, at the end of chapter three, we kind of uh, left something hanging. So let's just go here. Okay, the last Pasuk in chapter three, we didn't really have time to talk about this last time. So I just want to give it a few minutes because it's very related. In the beginning of Herakdalad, we have So what's going on here? After Ehud, we have Shamgar ben Anat. Shamgar ben Anat, who we know absolutely nothing about, right, except that he was a judge. We can theorize what tribe he's from because he fights the Philistines, and the Philistines are, you know, in the south by the coast, but we really don't know anything about him, except that he fights, he kills 600 Philistines with the ox goad. The Malmad is from the, the language of Lulamed, and you, you're teaching the oxen how to go. It was apparently, Das Mikra describes it as a, a board that you put between the team, you know, there's two oxen would be doing the plowing, let's say. <clears throat> In the middle is like a schwitz, a, a, a pointy part. <clears throat> and the oxen, if they start going the wrong direction, they get a prick. So he takes this farming tool and he kills 600 men, and he also saved Israel. And that's the end of chapter three, which we didn't really talk about last time, but when we get to chapter four, what's wrong with this? What should it say? It should say, where do we put Shamgar here? So we have to understand that the story of Shamgar is different from the story of Atniel and Ehud, and as we'll see today, Deborah and Barak, because we don't see any cycle here. We don't see sin. We don't see, you know, they're given over. We don't see that they're crying out. It's just this individual who kills these 600 children. No one is minimizing. That's quite a feat. But we do see that he doesn't fit into the pattern. So the, the commentators look at the story and they say, but why does it say about Ehud mate? Because Shamgar was kind of not exactly part of the story. Shamgar was either, um, he was just a, a, an adjunct. He was like another, another good leader and he also helped out. But the really significant leader was Ehud. And you can uh, prove that because it says here, by Yoshagam, who he also saved Israel, not to say he wasn't the Ehud person. He wasn't that leader who made this big difference. And, um, and the Radak says, I'm going to right here. Right. The Radak says, They weren't saved in full Shua Shlema. He didn't stop them. He didn't stop them from sinning. It wasn't part of this whole cycle. Hello, Tire. Don't you see? It doesn't say it. It only says that he also helped Israel. He also saved Israel. Now, here, Adak is referring to a Pasuk in chapter five, where it says that. In the days of Shamgar, this is the only re other reference to Shamgar, in the days of Shamgar and Ya'el, people had trouble traveling, which is not really a Yeshua, but means that they were in, having trouble. We also want to pay attention to this word by Yosifu. By Yosifu, and I think, Anna, you were asking about it last time, how do we know that they didn't do tshuva? We know because it says by Yosifu. They didn't actually change their ways. They continued doing evil. Ayud was there. 
but they continued in sinning. And this is a very sad story, but that's, that's what it says. And um, the Malbim says that they continued sinning while, while Ehud was alive. They never actually stopped. And the, the Dasmikra said, the Ehud made is a sort of, whenever we have in the Tanakh a simple past and Ehud died, the interpretation of that should be what we call in English past perfect. In other words, Ehud had died. It's a past perfect. If we do simple past in the Tanakh, it's going to be the Vavahipo. By Yosifu, they continued to do evil, and Ehud had died. In other words, Ehud's life, you know, prevented them because of his great merit, the Mepharshim say, because of his great merit, so they didn't get into trouble. But he, they were sitting the whole time. Now let's continue. Pasuk Bet. Okay. So up until the end of Pasuk Gimel, we have actually our complete cycle. If we look at our cycle, how does this work? Right? They sin, they yasifu, they shall Hashem, right? Hashem gives them over to Yabin, the king of Chatzor, and his general Sisra, right? And they cry out to God because he has 900 iron chariots, okay? In Pasuk Dal, we're going to see the um, this judge that's going to be set up to help them. Let's take a look a little more closely at Pasuk Bet. By Yim Karein, back in chapter two, we had two expressions for God giving us over to the enemies. One was, he'll give them, and one was, he will sell them. And selling, according to the Malvin, was a much more serious thing, because when you sell something, you're saying goodbye to it, you'll lose your touch with it. If you give something, you still have an interest, and you like that thing I gave you, right? But once you sell it, you, you walk away. We have a little bit of a problem with Yabin. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, um, but he's he's the king of Canaan. He is a king in Hatsor. And his general Sisra, they are in a place called Kairosh and Agoyim. So we have to explain these situations here. But um, one more minute. Let's just look at Gimel. And the children of Israel cried out to God because he had 900 iron chariots and he struck Israel and uh, he oppressed Israel powerfully for 20 years. Now, if you recall, Kushan was eight years. Eglon was 18 years. Now we're talking 20 years, 20 years of oppression and the tough oppression it says, it was very, very hard on the Jewish people. Now it's interesting that when they cry out to God, God listens to them, and it's, it's an important, like, you know, we're always talking about our, our lessons, right? The quality of Hashem's deliverance has to do with the quality of our actions, right? If they sort of do tshuva, so they get a more complete victory. If they're just davening, Hashem will help them, but not to the same degree. And it's very interesting to think about Hashem's compassion. Here we are, you know, on the edge of the Yom Noah in. Hashem's compassion is so great that even when we don't deserve it, he helps. When you see that the great victory after Ehud, 80 years of peace, wasn't that amazing? 80 years of peace. And they were sinning the whole time, according to Chazal. So that's a tremendous amount of God's compassion. And how much greater will the Yeshua be if we deserve the compassion? So it's something to think about. Okay, but what do we do with Yabin? Let's take a look at the map. I, I, I worked hard on this to get this map in. It's straight. <laughs> I turned it sideways to scan it. Okay, what's going on here? This area is basically the, the mid, mid Galil, the Galilee, right? This is the Jezreel Valley, Amic Israel. Up here, uh, this map. Uh, up here, well, it's not on this map. We'll look at the other map in a second. Up here is Hatzor, where Yavin is the king. And here is Hartabar, where the battle's going to happen. And here is the Kishon. We'll get back to this. This map would be better, perhaps. In this map, you could see 
that Chatzor is up here. This is the Kinneret. This is the Jordan. And Chatzor is up here. Now, over here by the Kishan River, they created a stronghold called Haroshet Hagoyim. So first of all, there's a lot of different explanations. What's Haroshet Hagoyim? Is that a place that's a fortress of the nations? Is that a place that's a factory of the nations? And, you know, it's interesting because everyone has a different idea about Haroshet Hagoyim. It's like a multiple, multiple choice. Rashi says it's a strong, powerful city, and the Radak says it's towers, it's a forest, and Matsuda Stubbitt said it's a hub of commerce, a lot of action going on there, and the Ralbag says all of the above. So I kind of found that, like, it reminds me of the multiple choice test, all of the above. So what's really going on here, and it's important to understand this, that in this place, Chaloshet Hagoyim, if you look at the geography of the land of Israel, maybe go back to, go back to the other I'm picking the, the better map each time. You see this whole area is dominated by Kanani. We, we spoke about the six nations. So the Kanani are the most prominent, the most important, and they have a tremendous amount of territory here from each and every tribe that we saw at the end of chapter one. They, they didn't left this, they left, they left this, they left that. Now what's happening here, in the introduction to this story in the Dath Mikra, the Dath Mikra explains that after all this time, so the Jews have been in the land for 80 years of Ehud, right? And Yoshua, uh, they've been in the land for a while and the Canaanim are starting to regroup. They make this uh, fortress city, a hub, and they get together there and they put together 900 iron chariots, and this is going to be their attempt at uniting and retaking the land. So this is a very, very crucial and important battle in the history of the Jews in the land of Israel, because they have this whole territory, and they want to keep it. They want to be the rulers. Yavin, in particular, is it's a very strange story because if you go back to Yeshua, which I don't have for you um, one second, in the screen share, but if you look at Yeshua chapter 11, it says, Vayashav Yeshua Eitzahim Vayilkodet Chatzor, Ve'et Malka Hikabacharev. Chapter 11, verse 10, Yeshua went back, he captured Chatzor, he killed the king, because Chatzor, ki Chatzor lefanim, he rosh kolim because Chatzor was the head of all these kingdoms. In other words, Chatzor was the central power in the Galil. And they struck all the people who were in it, lefi charev, destruction. They didn't leave anyone alive at Chatzor, Sarah, Asian. They burnt Hatsor in the fire. And another Pasuk later, Yud Gimel, Rakola Arimom Dotilam Losrafam Israel Zulatit Hatsor Levada Sabaf Yoshua. We have this testimony that in Saf Yoshua, Yoshua came into Hatsor, destroyed the whole place, killed everybody, burnt the city. What is left of Hatsor? Of course, now we're talking about a hundred years later, so things have changed, but in, in, in addition to that, in chapter 12, when we're listing the 31 kings, the king of Chatzor is one of them. So who is Yavin? So the theories are, A, it's like Paro. Every king of Chatzor is called Yavin. So it's not the same Yavin. B, it is the same Yavin. Those are the two theories. But it's 100 years later, so it's hard to imagine it's the same guy especially since we're explicitly told that he was killed. So what's happening over the time is that the Canaanim regrouped, they came back, they set up shop, and they want to take over. They become very powerful, and they are armed. They have 900 iron chariots. For comparison, this is Pasa Gimel, 900 iron chariots. Pyro only had 600. So that's a lot of iron chariots. Now, if we look at the Jews, right? I mean, you've got Shamgar with a, an implement of farming, right? You see this later, Shimshon, he, he uses the jawbone of a donkey 
like Jews, just they don't sit and make weapons. Even later on, Shaul and Yonatan, they, you know, there's like two swords between the whole army. Well, they got bows and they're primitive compared to the, the enemy. They are primitive. So now we have set up a very, very powerful enemy. They're connected. They're highly motivated. They're united. And the Jews who are, you know, not so, not such great warriors, not so united. And, you know, we have, we have issues here. The Kodesh Baruch is not so happy with us. So we move on to our heroine. And Devorah was a prophetess, a woman prophet. She was Eshet Lapidot, we'll talk about that in a minute, and she judged Israel at that time. So this is really what? <laughs> okay, so we have to ask a few questions, first of all. Devorah, first of all, is a Nebiah. The only other shofar that's clearly called a Nabi is Shmuel. This is a very, very high level. We, we see Ruach HaKodesh, Asnilas Ruach HaKodesh. Later on, we see this in other pieces, this Ruach HaKodesh, but a Navi. According to Chazal, there were 48 men and seven women of Riot whose prophecies were recorded because they are prophecies for posterity. There were many, many other prophets, but these are the ones that are recorded. There are seven women. Give me a second, I'll tell you. Uh, Sarah, Miriam, Hannah, Deborah, Abigail, Hulda, and Esther, right? I think I got eight there. Sarah, Miriam, Hannah, Deborah, Abigail, Hulda, and Esther, no, seven. Okay, so Deborah is a prophet, it's a very high level, and she's Asia Lapidota. <laughs> so what, what is that, Eshad Lapidot? So the simplest explanation is that her husband's name was Lapidot. She was the wife of Lapidot. On the other hand, it's sort of strange because we don't know anything. Who's Lapidot? We never heard of him, right? So the Medrash says, the Medrash says that Lapidot was Barak. So we meet Barak another couple of psukim. That Barak means lightning and Lapid means torch. So we're talking about light. And so really she was married to Barak, but we're only hinting at it. And apparently since Barak is from Naphtali and he lives up north, where, you know, in the tribe of Naphtali there at Kedesh, and she's down south, we'll see in Harifrayim. So the Chazal suggests that she separated from him because she was getting prophecy and there's a kind of Moshe Rabbeinu situation. But there's other very, very uh, ideas about uh, Lapidot. The Tzudas here says, She was a quick mover, uh, alacrity, and she, um, she was like a torch, right? And Rashi said she made wicks for the Mikdash. The Medrash says that she would make candles for it's not the Mikdash for the Mishkan, and she would increase the light in the Mishkan. And the Kaddish Baruch who said, Because you increased my light, I will increase your light. The Ralbag says also, like the Mitsudas, right? He said that. And then he says, It's like Eshes Chayim, a woman of valor, and Eshes Midanim, a woman of strife. Ashit Lapidot is a woman of fire, a fiery woman. And, right, the intention, Rabbi, Rabbi says here, that her Navu was so great that there appeared fire around her when she prophesied. So, you know, we love that, like Ashit Lapidot. She was a fiery woman. And we see, if we follow her story, that she's a quite a, a powerful personality, a fiery woman. And uh, I have a daughter named Devori, Devora, and my husband called her, and there's my sister Debbie, Devora. Someone once said to me, I never met a Devora who wasn't a powerhouse, <laughs> one way or another. It's very interesting. My husband used to call her, because he always has strange nicknames for our children, he called her Asia Slapidasol, like his biblical, till today. Ah, Asia Slapidasol, which is kind of long, but cute. Anyway. So she judged Israel at that time. 
which we'll talk about in a second. So we have to ask ourselves why, why she is the judge, because after all, she's a woman, and we know that women are not supposed to take leadership roles. There is a, a sort of, um, there's halachas about women being judges in the sense of dayanim, but in a general hashkafic sense, women are not supposed to be in the forefront. They're supposed to be behind the scenes. And um, where, do we, where do we find a woman who's like the leader? Like she's the leader. So it's an interesting thing. And Chazal are very um, uh, interested in, they have a few different explanations for this. But if you take a look here, First of all, we have this phrase here, Ba'etahi. She was the judge at that time. So that's the first explanation, is that she was the greatest person of the age. It was at that time. There was no one greater than Deborah, and she became the leader. Now, the Chazal are not so always so positive about her and they say things that will you know we'll, we'll go into as we get to the psukim that she was a, she was uh arrogant and that she shouldn't uh have done this or done that and they're down on her and that's rabbi nachman and rabbi barachia says you know what kind of a generation the best they could do is come up with a woman <laughs> but the times of eliyahu rabba it's a beautiful medrash and I feel very sad. I tried very hard to find it in the computer so that I could show it to you, but I'll just give you the, 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 the explanation of it. I testify by the sky and the earth. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a non-Jew, a man or a woman, the spirit of God comes upon a person according to the greatness of their deeds. And what the Tanz Yahu Rabbah is saying that um, we have to always respect personal merit and personal ability with, without regard to sex, religion, race, status. When a person is a good person, when a person is a proper person, when a person has abilities, we have to respect that no matter who they are. And this is a very, very important lesson for us. We'll take this as our life lesson, right? We have to, Akash Prophet rewards people according to their merit and not according to their status. And um, it, I find it very interesting if we look at the women in the Tanakh, Hannah becomes a Nevi'ah when she becomes a mother. So it's kind of motherhood that brings her to this place of greatness. And Devorah, we really don't know much about her family. She calls herself in chapter five, Aim be Israel, a mother in Israel. And they say she's the wife of somebody, which perhaps, but what is it that really pushes Devorah to this great role of leadership? That seems to be her own merit, her own deeds. A very big contrast to uh, Hannah, and I think, I think women really should take a lesson from the stories of the women in Tanakh, and I think that we have to recognize everyone has their abilities, everyone has their um, talents and their personalities, and you have to go with that. Like if you're, um, if you're like Hannah, so anxious to to be a mother, then that's a very important thing. Or if you're like Devorah, who was out there working for the nation, that's also a very important thing. And I really feel that one of the things that we could take away from the story of Devorah and later Yael is that women really are very multifaceted. I always, I taught a course in Nashim uh, Tanach, and I, I actually, Actually, it was a woman in Nach. I didn't really look at the women in the Chumash. But the truth of the matter is, I was I was saying to my students, I just cannot find a wimpy woman. It doesn't matter if she's just a wife 
a just a wife, just a mother. Like the women in the Tanakh have strong personalities. No two are the same. They have moral lives. They're, they are learning and growing. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great lesson to us to like be ourselves. And um, Torah gives you room to do, like we have our framework of the Torah, but within that, women can do lots of different things. And um, yay for women. Okay, moving along. Now it says here, she judged Israel by Eitzahi, that's Pasuk Dalit, and Pasuk Hay, it says, The children of Israel went up to her to Mishpat. Isn't that redundant? So one of the explanations that we have for why Deborah is the judge is that it's by Eitzahi at that time. It was a special time and she was the greatest of the age. Another explanation is, this is not redundant. She was the judge. Why? Because people went to her. The people accepted her upon themselves. She's the one they wanted to go to. She's the one they trusted. And I, that's a very, very important uh, part of this, um, this story that Dafka her, Dafka her judgments. Later on, we'll see that, you know, probably mostly in, in chapter five, we'll see that she actually brings the children of Israel to do tshuva. With her judgments, people come to her, they learn from her. In many, many ways, Deborah was an educator. is an interesting thing. Like, what is that about? So the, some of them say, some of them first say that this was referring to Deborah in, in Sefer Bracious, who was the, the nurse of uh, Rivka, right? She had, uh, you know, she sat under her tree, but I, I think that's a little bit, um, I, I'm not sure what that gives us. There's a nicer thing here, really. Um, Mitsuda says, This is a common um, theme among the Mepharshim. She's a woman judge. She has other uh, issues than, than men judges. A man comes to ask her a Shiloh, right? She has to be in a place where there can be no question of Yichud. And if she's sitting outside under a tree, that is the perfect solution. So that's what she sees. And it seems that it was eventually called the Toma Devora. Now the Ramak of Moshe Cordovera wrote a book called Toma Devora. It's the symbolism of that, the teaching of that. But this is, um, this is her tree. And this is what she did. Now there's many place names referenced here. Ben Arama, Ben Beitel, Harafrayim. So the... Uh, the Mepharshim say she was a very wealthy woman and she had business in each of these places. Well, we'll go into that, but it's an interesting thought. And um, everybody went to her for judgment. She was universally accepted, which is a really crazy thing in Judaism because Jews don't accept anybody universally. So she must have been quite somebody. Now, she calls, this is where the action begins, she sends for Barak to come from Kedesh Naftali, Batomer in love, according to Hazal, their husband and wife. Batomer in love, she said to him, hello, now hello, the Rambam says is the language of appointment. You are it. You have been elected for this job you do not want. Hashem commands you, lech, go, um, take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And I will pull to you, this is of course Hashem speaking, this is a prophecy, Sisra, that general of the Kananim, and all of his chariots and all of his multitudes, and I will give him in your hand. So he's given this command, mashachta, pull. It was interesting when Yaakov says with the chauffeur, Yaakov says, because it says that in Bayericho, um, referring to a chauffeur, but it seems that he has to, Convince 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun to come follow him. Now, these people are petrified 
of the 900 iron chariots. So if you think of each iron chariot as a tank, okay, there's no weapons by the Jews. They're running around with farming implements, right? And they're facing 900 tanks. It's quite a challenge. That's your job. You get those people and God will do the rest. He'll bring Sisra there and he will give him in your hand. Now Barak's reaction is, Barak said, if you go with me, I'll go. You're not going, I'm not going. Okay, this is actually what, what did you just say, Barak? <laughs> He's not willing to go without her. How do we understand that? So here, Ralbag says here, he thought that her merit would bring more hashgacha, right? Now the Malbim, okay, the Malbim says, right? It is not, and I think it's a very nice, it makes this comment, Malbim, it's a beautiful Malbim, he says, it's not that he doubted her, her nevuah, it's not that he rebelled because he has to do what the prophet tells him, this is a command from God. It's just to bring 10,000 men, he says, if they're not going to believe in me, I'm going for nothing. If you go, that's something. Everybody goes to Devorah. Everybody accepts Devorah as the leader. Devorah is clearly the leader before the war, which we don't see in most of the Shoftim. She's the judge. They go to her for judgment. That's before the war. He says, if you come, we could do something if I go. I'm going to go for nothing. And Beth, the Balaam says, after she tells him that there's going to be a miracle, he felt, my merit is not enough for this miracle, but your merit is. So it's a very interesting take on what Barak says. And it seems that he's, he's unsure of himself. It's very, very interesting because, right, we've seen this before. We see Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't want to go. Yimio doesn't want to go. You know, this time of year, we're looking at Yona who actually refuses to go and disappears, right? So he can, he can be understood. He says, I'm, I'm not worthy of this. This is how the Malbim understands it. I'm not up to this for I need you. Pasuk she replies, Tomer, double language. I will surely go with you. The English always translate that it surely go with you. The literal translation would be, going, I will go with you. It's a double emphasis. Ephes, now Ephes is a but. But? There will be no glory for you on this path that you are going. Because God will give Sisra over to a woman. And Vor got up and went with him to Kedesh. So what is going on? What is, her answer is quite strong. And um, we might be forgiven for saying a little bit harsh. She says, okay, I will go with you. If you want me to go, I'll go. But God will not give you any glory here. So the question is, did Barak want glory? Is that what he's talking about? Right? And then... Furthermore, why, why won't he get any glory? And then he, she says, God will give sister in the hand of a woman. And who is she talking about? So the Ralbag says here, the Boris says, you're not going to have, um, uh, uh, you're not going to have glory because this whole thing will be attributed to me, right? And Nitnab'ah, she had a prophecy here that Sisra would fall the hand of women and we're talking about Yael. So she maybe doesn't know that Yael will be the woman who kills Sisra, but she says either way. The Mitsudas has a very nice take here. Mitsudas explains, you can be, you can get glory when you fight a battle in two ways. One is if you go out to fight and you do deeds of bravery. And the other is if you kill the leader. Now, if Barak, if Yael is going to kill Sisra, right, 
So then he could get the glory by being the brave general who goes out to war. But if he needs Deborah to go with him, then he's losing out on both fronts. And um, it's a little bit of a, a put out of him. And it's a little bit, because um, I'm a little uh, disappointed with Deborah. Now, let's go on. Pasuk Yud. And Barak calls up Zvulun and Naftali to Kedesh, and they come up with him 10,000 men, and Devora goes up with him. Right, so there, are, there they are. Vechever Akeni, the Pasekir Aleph is so out of place that we just have to stop and take a look at it. Chever the Keni separated himself from Kayin, from the sons of the Nechoba of Chote Moshe, by Yet Alo Ad Elon Bitsa'anim Asher Et Kadesh. This is a complete parenthesis. We are being told that this man, Hever, who is a Kani, not to be confused with Kanani. Kanani is with Chafnun Ayin, right? And this is Kuf Yud Nun. There's no Ayin, there's no Chaf. Who are the Kani? Wait one second, we'll explain it. <coughs> but we are being told something completely out of order here that Hever, this Kani guy, separates himself from the rest of the Kani, who were descendants of Choba of Chosen Moshe, which is another name. Who was Moshe's father-in-law? We all know. Yisro. Yisro had seven names. My, my father used to say, <laughs> every time he married off one of his seven daughters, he went bankrupt and needed a new name. <laughs> oh, that was his Yisro joke. Anyway, apparently, Yisro has seven names, and one of them is Chobab, and his descendants are the Kani. So the, we could spend an hour talking about the Kani, we don't have time for it, but basically the descendants of Yisro joined the Jewish people in Israel. Did they become Jewish? Not clear. Moshe invites them to join. It's not really clear what happens, but we do find them popping in and out all through Jewish history, and they are mostly very good allies of the Jewish people. They continue the tradition of Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, I'm sorry, of Moshe's father-in-law, of Yisrael, helping the Jewish people. Now, if you saw earlier in, in Yoshua and in Shoftim, they settled, they came into Yericho, they settled the land of Yericho in that area, which is very, very um, prosperous, and they moved, they migrated, the time of us now, they migrated south in the direction of uh, where Amalek lives near Yehuda to be in the desert to learn Torah with Asniel, Yavetz. And now he separates himself from that, uh, the, the southern dwellers of the Kani, and they're all down there, and he moves himself all the way up to Kedesh. And we don't know at what point that happened. There's different theories, a lot going on here with the Haiti, right? With, with the Kani. But he is on the spot there, and that's what we're being told. So one of the things we have to understand is that a Gadishbar who has this all figured out. The people who need to be in place are gonna be in place. And that's all that happens before. It's it's sort of um, the foreshadowing and the interesting this is another important lesson that, you know, we should have a moon, a who has it figured out. We may not get why this one goes there and who's either, like, why are we here? Why do we live here and why not there? There is actually a, we find the Kani, we find the Kani in the time of Sha'ul. They live by the, by the Amalek and when Sha'ul was supposed to kill Amalek, he tells the Kani, you guys are good guys, you better go away because I don't want to hurt you. And if you look, I'm just gonna give you the, the reference, or maybe I'll put it in the chat. In Yirmiyahu, um, 30, okay, that the, Okay, the word of God came to Yermiyahu saying, right, 
go to the Yehonadzah uh, ben Rechav, that he commanded his children never to drink wine and never always listen to the, the mitzvah of their father. And I spoke to them, right? And they live in tents, right? And it's a whole different thing. They follow their father and they always live in tents and they have certain laws and they seem to be descendants of the Kani. This is Yirmiyahu chapter 35, if you want to look that up. Anyway, so now we get back to our story. Pasik, what is this? Pasik Yudbet. Sisra Barak ben Avinoam Hartabar. Sisra has come up, I'm sorry, Barak has gone up to Hartabar and Sisra hears about it. And this is an act of war. If we take a look at our geography here. He climbs up on Hartabar. Now that's a good spot because you're on the top of the mountain. And we know from Parak Aleph that a lot of the times the Jews were on the high ground and the, um, the nations, the Canaanite nations were in the low ground. But going up there with 10,000 men is an act of war. So Sisra, Pasekut Gimel, Sisra gathers together all of his multitudes, all of his 900 chariots, and he takes them to Nachal Kishon. And Nachal Kishon is here. If you're looking at the map, it's going down this way. Right? This is in, uh, in this map, the Dat Mikra map, the, in the italics is today, Afula, right? Near Afula, this happens up north. Okay. And Devorah said to Barak, get up, because this is the day that God has given Sisera in your hand. Hello, again, the language of command and direction. You, you Barak, have to do this. Hello, did not Hashem go out before you? And Barak went down from Hartabor and 10,000 men with him. Now I have to understand that in the natural course of events, right? This is a ridiculous thing to do. He's got the high ground. He's facing 900 chariots. He's only got 10,000 men. They have multitudes. And he's going down where his people can be slaughtered. It, it's like the charge of the light brigade. It's a suicide mission. Unless God is on your side. Okay? And this is what Hashem tells him to do. Imagine the bravery of Barak. He doesn't get enough credit for him and his men to leave the high ground and to go down to face the 900 chariots. And Hashem confused confused Sisera and all his chariots and all his camp by the sword before Barak. And Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled on foot. Now, the word Vayaham, Vayaham is used also, a lot of the language in our story is similar to the language of the Exodus. Why? You have the Jews, you have 600 Rechab Barzel, you have the oppression, the lachats of the Mitzrim, you have the Bayitzaku al Hashem, and now you have the Mehuma, Bayaham Hashem et Machene Mitzrayim. So there is a, a Pasuk in Shmuel where it says that God thundered on the Philistines in a great uh, voice and he confused them. That's Parag Zion Pasuk Yud in Shmuel Aleph. And over there, Rashi says, this is the so to speak, the Binyan Av, this is the granddaddy of all Mahuma. Whenever you see Mahuma comes from the word Hamon, which means a lot. And confusion comes from a lot of people, multitudes. And it always comes from thunder. So we understand because of that Pasuk and Shmuel that every time God confuses people, he does it by thunder. So you can imagine a thunderstorm. I don't know, I don't know Debbie, do you remember once we were out in South Africa in the middle of a thunderstorm? It was terrifying. I, I've never seen anything like that with jagged streaks in the sky. Okay, so they're terrified. And Sisra, that brave general, runs away by foot because the chariots are no good. If there's a thunderstorm and there's rain, Josephus talks about this unexpected 
rain in June, a thunderstorm, and how this totally um, disabled the chariot. And sister runs away. Barak is following all the, the running, the, the fleeing Canaanim. And wipes them all out. Now we get to the crunch. Sisera is running away by foot. Now he's going in the opposite direction. If you look at the map, right, they were running back to Haroshad Agoyim, and Sisera's running in the direction of um, Naphtali, Kedesh. And that's where Heber has come and his wife, Yael. And he comes to the tent of Yael, who was the wife of Heber, came and apparently everyone had their own tents. You see this all so gracious. Right? So Yael is not in the same tent with Heber. And there's peace between Yambin, the king of Hatzor, and between the house of Heber and Now I have to understand, the Druze today, the Druze um, consider themselves descendants of Yisro. And, um, you know, my husband was in the army with a lot of Druze. The Druze have a weird thing. They, like we saw in Yirmiyahu, they live in tents. They don't consider that they own land. And they are loyal to the rulers of whatever land they're in. So you can have Jerus that live in Israel that are devoted to the state of Israel and will fight in the army. And you have Jerus in Syria who are devoted to Syria. It's a very, very strange situation. So when Sisra sees Yael's tent, he's not so sure about it, but he knows that there is, seems to be peace between the Cani and the Kanani, so he heads that way. And Yael comes in and says, Come, turn, turn over here. Come, come. Altira, don't be afraid. And he turns toward her to her tent. She covers him with a blanket. Well, this man is cold, he's wet. He's exhausted and he's running. Can you imagine, you know, we have this expression that like the rat leaving the sinking ship. He runs away from all his people, the brave general, and he runs and he's trying to save himself. And she says, it's okay, come on in, it's okay. He's, he's hesitant. He said to her, please give me some water to drink, I'm thirsty. And she opens up the jug of milk and she gives him to drink and she covers him again. Now, he asked for water. Why would she give him milk? Because if you're cold and wet and tired, so milk, you know, they didn't have a refrigerator because all the milk was warm. Warm milk and a nice warm blankie. And he said to her, Amod, stand. That's a masculine, so I'm not quite sure why that's masculine, but make yourself strong. Stand by the entrance of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, tell them there's nobody here. And the Malbim has an interesting take on this. The Malbim says it wasn't considered proper to go into a woman's tent unless there was a man there. So he's protected. If she says there's no man here, like they're saying, if her husband's there, they'll come in and they'll search. But if she's alone, it would be not proper for them to go in. So he thinks he's safe. And Yael, the wife of Heber, takes the tent pin and she puts the hammer in her hand. So if she's right-handed, let's say she's got the heavy hammer that you set up the tent with, and she's got the peg in the other hand, and she comes to him stealthily. And she smashes that tent pin into his temple. We saw that word with Achsa. He sinks into the ground 
and he was in a deep sleep and he was tired and he died. So there's a little bit of a problem with the order of these verbs. Basically, um, the, the Radak says it's a past perfect, right? He had been very tired and therefore he fell into a deep sleep and therefore he died because he was so deep asleep that she, she killed him in this way. So then at the end, and Barak is chasing after Sisera. He's still trying to catch Sisera. Why? Because when you don't kill the leader, they may regroup and come back to haunt you. I remember when the Gulf War was over and it was, oh, so happy the Gulf War was over. So until I see Saddam Hussein dead, I'm not happy. Right? It took a while. All right? And she says, Barak, come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. Right? And behold, Sisera's bull and dead, and the pin was in, the ten pin was in his temple. Now, Hazal say, why didn't she use a man's weapon? Because you're not supposed to use a man's weapon. But again, people didn't have so much weapons then. And certainly not a woman's head. What does she have available? She is a very, very brave woman. And I think that bravery is underrated as a, a tremendous media. Bravery will keep you from falling uh, victim to sin. Like if everyone's doing it, so you are brave, you say, I'm not doing that just because everyone's doing it. That is a brave bravery. And bravery is something that helps a person stretch themselves, do something that they, that they are a little bit afraid of. It's fascinating in this parak that you see the really brave ones are the women. Sisra is a coward. He runs away alone, right? Barak, I wouldn't call him a coward, but he's definitely insecure. Devorah knows what she's doing. She knows who she is. And Yael just goes right in there and kills this barbarian. Okay, Pasakov Gimel. And God caused, this is a Hefil, God caused Yavin to surrender before the children of Israel. And the hands of the children of Israel went on heavier and heavier on Yavin, the king of Canaan, until they completely cut him off. So we have to understand that this is actually, um, excuse the expression, Custer's last stand. This is the Canaanese last stand. This is their last concerted effort to push the Jews out, to take over the land of Israel. And the Kaddish Baruch who gives the Jews, who we saw in the beginning are not such great tzaddikim, he gives them this tremendous victory and he helps them. And this is our, our important lesson. Now, uh, I'm going to just take one more minute to just ask the, ask the question of how could Yael go against the treaty? There seems to have been some sort of peace between Yavin and the Kani. So the Mepharshim are very, very disturbed about this. The Dathmikra says this is the nature of the Kani. They're loyal to the people who rule. If the Jews are ruling, they're loyal to the Jews. And because the Canaanim are oppressing them and taking over. That doesn't mean they're the rulers. So the Kani were playing kind of both sides of the fences, the Das Mikra, and they kept themselves friendly, but they really were loyal to the Jews. And the Abarbanel is very disturbed by this story. And he says, perhaps she's not obligated in her husband's treaty, which is an interesting thought. And then he goes into this whole thing, Beit Yavin and not Yavin, and Beit Hever and not Hever, and maybe he's not obligated. But I saw a fabulous explanation um, by a Rabbi Landau, right, a German rabbi, and he said Hever was dead. I thought that was really brilliant. If Hever is dead, she's certainly not bound by anything that Hever was bound to, and she felt herself free to support the Jewish people, which is quite an amazing thought. And um, the, the Medrash says that the 
children of uh, the of the Kani, the children of Yisro, continued the tradition of helping the Jewish people. We see how this is uh, the great the great victory. And again, this is our uh, our takeaway. Number one, women can do anything, and it's not like the Tanadbe Eliyahu Rabbah says. It's the merit of the person. It's the quality of the person that's what counts, and not, you know, anything else that's, uh, you know, extraneous to that that merit. And she is a great person, and this is the the story of the women. There is another woman in the story in, in chapter five. We'll see, but these two are great heroines, and um, they help Hashem do this amer- amazing miracle. These to snatch victory um, when really there was, uh, in a natural sense, this could never ever have happened. And Devorah is unusual because Devorah is a judge before anything happens. She's accepted as a leader. And that is one of the great problems, a number of the themes that will be addressed in chapter five. One of the great problems with the time of the judges is that they really aren't leaders. There's a real lack of leadership. So whenever there's a problem, God helps them out and brings them somebody. But see that Devorah was actually a leader before. Devorah is really um, one, of, one of the greatest judges we ever had, woman or not, something to be proud of.